The slate pencil squeaked across the grey tablet. The paper must cost something, and you'd probably have to tip someone a couple of pennies to sell it. Angular figures danced from column to column. I'll, um, oh, I'll make a cup of tea, shall I? said Nanny, relieved that the conversation appeared to be coming to a peaceful end. Hmm? said Granny. She stared at the result and drew two lines under it. But you enjoyed it, did you? she called out. The writing? Nanny Og poked her head around the scullery door. Oh, yes. The money didn't matter, she said. You've never been very good at numbers, have you? said Granny. Now she drew a circle around the final figure. Oh, you know me, Esme, said Nanny cheerfully. I couldn't subtract a fart from a plate of beans. That's good, because I reckon this master goat burger owes you a bit more than you got, if there's any justice in the world, said Granny. Money ain't everything, Esme. What I say is, if you've got your health, I reckon if there's any justice, it's about four or five thousand dollars, said Granny quietly. There was a crash from the scullery. So it's a good job the money don't matter, Granny Weatherwax went on. It'll be a terrible thing otherwise, all that money. Mattering. Nanny Og's white face appeared round the edge of the door. He never. Could be a bit more, said Granny. It never. You just adds up and divides and that. Nanny Og stared in horrified fascination at her own fingers. But that's a... she stopped. The only word she could think of was fortune, and that wasn't adequate. Witches didn't operate in a cash economy. The whole of the ramtops, by and large, got by without the complications of capital. Fifty dollars was a fortune. A hundred dollars was a... was a... well, it was two fortunes. That was what it was. It's a lot of money, she said weakly. What couldn't I do with money like that? Dunno said Granny Weatherwax. What did you do with the three dollars? Got it in a tin up the chimney, said Nanny Og. Granny nodded approvingly. This was the kind of good fiscal practice she liked to see. Beats me why people would fall over themselves to read a cookery book, though, she added. I mean, it's not the sort of thing... The room fell silent. Nanny Og shuffled her boots. Granny said in a voice laden with a suspicion that was all the worse because it wasn't quite yet sure what it was suspicious of. It is... A cookery book, isn't it? Oh, yes, said Nanny hurriedly, avoiding Granny's gaze. Yes, uh, recipes and that, yes. Granny glared at her. Just recipes? Yes, oh, yes, uh, yes, and um, some cookery anecdotes, yes. Granny went on glaring. Nanny gave in. Uh. Look under famous carrot and oyster pie, she said. Page 25. Granny turned the pages. Her lips moved silently. Then, I see. Anything else? Um, cinnamon and marshmallow fingers, page 17. Granny looked it up. And? Uh, celery astonishment, page 10. Granny looked that up too. Can't say it astonished me, she said, and, uh, well, more or less, all of humorous puddings and cake decoration. Uh, that's all of chapter six. I've done illustrations for that. Granny turned to chapter six. She had to turn the book around a couple of times. What one are you looking at? said Nanny Og, because an author is always keen to get feedback. 
Strawberry Wobbler, said Granny. Oh, that one always gets a laugh. It did not appear to be obtaining one from Granny. She carefully closed the book. Githan, she said, this is me asking you this. Is there any page in this book, is there any single recipe which does not in some way relate to <clears throat> goings-on? Nanny Og, her face red as apples, seemed to give this some lengthy consideration. Porridge, she said eventually. Really? Yes. Er, uh, no. I tell a lie, it's got my special honey mixture in it. Granny turned a page. What about this one, maids of honour? Well, they starts out as maids of honour, said Nanny, fidgeting with her feet, but they ends up tarts. Granny looked at the front cover again. The Joy of Snacks. And you actually set out... Well, it's just sort of turned out that way, really. Granny Weatherwax was not a jouster in the lists of love, but as an intelligent onlooker, she knew how the game was played. No wonder the book had sold like hotcakes. Half the recipes told you how to make them. It was surprising the pages hadn't singed. And it was by a Lancre witch. The world was, Granny Weatherwax modestly admitted, well aware of who the witch of Lancre was, viz, it was her. Githa Og, she said. Yes, Esme. Githa Og, you look me in the eye. Sorry, Esme. A Lancre witch, it says here. I never thought, Esme. So you'll go and see Mr Goatburger and have this stopped, right? I don't want people looking at me and thinking about the banana-nana soup surprise. I don't even believe the banana-nana soup surprise. And I ain't relishing going down the street and hearing people making cracks about bananas. Yes, Esme. And I'll come with you to make sure you do. Yes, Esme. And we'll talk to the man about your money. Yes, Esme. And we might just drop in on young Agnes to make sure she's all right. Yes, Esme. And we'll do it diplomatic-like. We don't want people thinking we're poking our noses in. Yes, Esme. No one could say I interfere where I'm not wanted. You won't find anyone calling me a busybody. Yes, Esme. That was, yes, Esme, you won't find anyone calling you a busybody, was it? Oh, yes, Esme. You sure about that? Yes, Esme. Good. Granny looked out at the dull grey sky and the dying leaves and felt, amazingly enough, her sap rising. A day ago, the future had looked aching and desolate, and now it looked full of surprises and terror and bad things happening to people. If she had anything to do with it anyway. In the scullery, Nanny Og grinned to herself. Agnes had known a little bit about the theatre, a travelling company came to Lancre sometimes, their stage was about twice the size of a door, and backstage consisted of a bit of sacking behind which was usually a man trying to change trousers and wigs at the same time, and another man dressed as a king having a surreptitious smoke. The opera house was almost as big as the patrician's palace and far more palatial. It covered three acres. There was stabling for twenty horses and two elephants in the cellar. Agnes spent some time there because the elephants were reassuringly larger than her. There were rooms behind the stage so big that entire sets were stored there. There was a whole ballet school somewhere in the building. Some of the girls were on stage now, ugly in woolly jumpers, going through a routine. 
The inside of the opera house, at least the backstage inside, put Agnes strongly in mind of the clock her brother had taken apart to find the tick. It was hardly a building, it was more like a machine. Sets and curtains and ropes hung in the darkness like dreadful things in a forgotten cellar. The stage was only a small part of the place, a little rectangle of light in a huge, complicated darkness full of significant machinery. A piece of dust floated down from the blackness high above. She brushed it off. I thought I heard someone up there, she said. It's probably the ghost, said Christine. We've got one, you know. Oh, I said we. Oh, isn't this exciting? A man with his face covered by a white mask, said Agnes. <gasps> You've heard about him then? What? Who? The ghost? Blast, thought Agnes. It was always ready to catch her out, just when she thought she'd put all that behind her. She'd know things without quite knowing why. It upset people. It certainly upset her. Oh, I suppose someone must have told me, she mumbled. He moves around the opera house invisibly, they say. One moment he'll be in the gods, and the next moment he'll be backstage somewhere. No one knows how he does it. Really? They say he watches every performance. That's why they never sell tickets for Box 8. Didn't you know? Box 8, said Agnes. What's a box? Boxes! You know, that's where you get the best people. Look, I shall show you. Christine marched to the front of the stage and waved a hand grandly at the empty auditorium. The boxes, she said, over there and right up there. The gods. Her voice bounced back from the distant wall. Aren't the best people in the gods? Sounds... Oh, no, the best people will be in the boxes or possibly in the stalls. Agnes pointed. Who's down there? They must get a good view. Don't be silly. That's the pit. That's for the musicians. Well, that makes sense anyway. Uh, which one's box eight? I don't know. But they say if ever they sell seats in box eight, there'll be a dreadful tragedy. Isn't that romantic? For some reason, Agnes's practical eye was drawn to the huge chandelier that hung over the auditorium like a fantastic sea monster. Its thick rope disappeared into the darkness near the ceiling. The glass chimes tinkled. Another flare of that certain power which Agnes did her best to suppress at every turn flashed a treacherous image across her mind. That looks like an accident waiting to happen if ever I saw one, she mumbled. I'm sure it's perfectly safe, trilled Christine. I'm sure they wouldn't allow... A cord rolled out, shaking the stage. The chandelier tinkled, and more dust came down. What was that? said Agnes. It was the organ. It's so big, it's behind the stage. Come on, let's go and see. Other members of the staff were hurrying towards the organ. There was an overturned bucket nearby, and a spreading pool of green paint. A carpenter reached past Agnes and picked up an envelope that was lying on the organ seat. It's for the boss, he said. When it's my mail, the postman usually just knocks, said a ballerina and giggled. Agnes looked up. Ropes swung lazily in the musty darkness. For a moment she thought she saw a flash of white and then it was gone. There was a shape, just visible, tangled in the ropes. Something wet and sticky dripped down and splashed on the keyboard. People were already screaming when Agnes reached past, dipped her finger in the growing puddle and sniffed. It's blood, said the carpenter. It's blood, isn't it? said a musician. Blood! screamed Christine. Blood! It was Agnes's terrible fate to keep her head in a crisis. She sniffed her finger again. It's turpentine, said Agnes. Er, uh, sorry, is that wrong? 
Up in the tangle of ropes, the figure moaned. Shouldn't we get him down? she added. Kandu Cutoff was a humble woodcutter. He wasn't humble because he was a woodcutter. He would still have been quite humble if he'd owned five logging mills. He was just naturally humble. And he was unpretentiously stacking some logs at the point where the Lancre Road met the main mountain road when he saw a farm cart rumble to a halt and unload two elderly ladies in black. Both carried a broomstick in one hand and a sack in the other. They were arguing. It was not a raised-voice argument, but a chronic wrangle that had clearly been going on for some time and was set in for the rest of the decade. "'It's all very well for you, but it's my three dollars, so I don't see why I can't say how we go.' "'I likes flying, and I'm telling you it's too drafty on broomsticks this time of year, Esme. The breeze gets into places I wouldn't dream of talking about.' "'Really? Can't imagine where those would be, then.' "'Oh, Esme!' Don't owe Esme me. It weren't me that come up with the amusing wedding trifle with the special sponge fingers. Anyway, Grebo don't like it on the broomstick. He's got a delicate stomach. Cutoff noticed that one of the sacks was moving in a lazy way. Gither, I've seen him eat half a skunk, so don't tell me about his delicate stomach, said Granny, who disliked cats on principle. Anyway, he's been doing it again. Nanny Og waved her hands airily. Oh, he only does it sometimes when he's really in a corner, she said. He did it in old Mrs. Grope's henhouse last week. She went in to see what all the ruckus was, and he did it right in front of her. She had to have a lie down. He was probably more frightened than she was, said Nanny defensively. That's what comes of getting strange ideas in foreign parts, said Granny. Now you've got a cat who... Yes, what is it? Cutoff had meekly approached them and was hovering in the kind of half-crouch of someone trying to be noticed while also not wanting to intrude. "'Are you ladies waiting for the stagecoach?' "'Yes,' said the taller of the ladies. "'Um, I'm afraid the next coach doesn't stop here. It doesn't stop until Creel Springs.' They gave him a couple of polite stares. "'Thank you,' said the tall one. She turned to her companion. "'It gave her a nasty shock anyway.' I dread to think what he'll learn this time. He pines when I'm gone. He won't take food from anyone else, only cos they try to poison him, and no wonder. Cutoff shook his head sadly and wandered back to his log pile. The coach turned up five minutes later, coming round the corner at speed. It drew level with the women and stopped. That is, the horses tried to stand still and the wheels locked. It wasn't so much a skid as a spin, and the whole thing gradually came to rest about fifty yards down the road, with the driver in a tree. The women strolled towards it, still arguing. One of them poked the driver with her broomstick. Two tickets to Unk Moorpork, please. He landed in the road. Well, what do you mean, two tickets to Unk Moorpork? The coach doesn't stop here. Look, stop to me. Did you do something? What, us? Listen, lady... Even if I was stopping here, the tickets are forty damn dollars each. Oh. Why have you got broomsticks? shouted the driver. Are you witches? Yes. Have you got any special low terms for witches? Yeah. How about meddling interfering old baggages? Cutoff felt that he must have missed part of the conversation because the next exchange went like this. What was that again, young man? Two. Complimentary tickets to Ankh-Morpork, ma'am. No problem. 
Inside seats, mind. No travelling on the top? Certainly, ma'am. Excuse me while I just kneel in the dirt so you can step up, ma'am. Cutoff nodded happily to himself as the coach pulled away again. It was nice to see that good manners and courtesy were still alive. With great difficulty and much shouting and untangling of ropes far above, the figure was lowered to the stage. He was soaked in paint and turpentine. The swelling audience of off-duty staff and rehearsal truants crowded in around him. Agnes knelt down, loosened his collar, and tried to unwind the rope that had caught around arm and neck. "'Does anyone know him?' she said. "'It's Tommy Cripps,' said a musician. "'He paints scenery.' Tommy moaned and opened his eyes. "'I saw him,' he muttered. "'It was horrible.' "'Saw what?' said Agnes, and then she had a sudden feeling that she'd intruded on some private conversation. Around her there was a babble of voices. "'Giselle said she saw him last week.' "'He's here.' "'It's happening again.' "'Are we all doomed?' squeaked Christine. Tommy Cripps gripped Agnes's arm. "'He's got a face like death.' "'Who?' "'The ghost.' What ghost? It's white bone. He has no nose. A couple of ballet dancers fainted, but carefully so as not to get their clothes dirty. Then how does he... Agnes began. I saw him too. On cue, the company turned. An elderly man advanced across the stage. He wore an ancient opera hat and carried a sack over one shoulder while his spare hand made the needlessly expansive gestures of someone who has got hold of some direful information and can't wait to freeze all nearby spines. The sack must have contained something alive because it was bouncing around. I saw him, oh yes, with his great black cloak and his white face with no eyes, but only two holes where eyes should be. Oh, and... He had a mask on, said Agnes. The old man paused and shot her the dark look reserved for all those who insist on injecting a note of sanity when things are getting interestingly ghastly. And he had no nose, he went on, ignoring her. I just said that, muttered Tommy Cripps in a rather annoyed voice. I told them that. They already know that. If he had no nose, how did he smell? Agnes began, but no one was listening to her. Did you mention about the eyes? said the old man. I was just getting round to the eyes, snapped Tommy. Yes, he had eyes like... Are we talking about some kind of mask here? said Agnes. Now everyone was giving her that kind of look UFOologists get when they suddenly say, Hey, if you shade your eyes, you can see it is just a flock of geese after all. The man with the sack coughed and regrouped. Like great holes they were, he began, but it was clear that it had all been spoiled for him. Great holes, he said sourly. That's what I saw. And no nose, I might add. Thank you so very much. It's the ghost again, said a scene shifter. He jumped out from behind the organ, said Tommy Cripps. Next thing I knew, there was a rope around me neck and I was upside down. The company looked at the man with the sack, in case he could trump this. Great black holes, he managed, sticking to what he knew. All right, everyone, what's going on here? 
An imposing figure strode out of the wings. He had flowing black hair, carefully brushed to give it a carefree, alfresco look, but the face underneath was the face of an organiser. He nodded at the old man with the sack. "'What are you staring at, Mr Pounder?' he said. The old man looked down. "'I knows what I saw, Mr Salzeller,' he said. "'I see lots of things I do.' "'As much as is visible through the bottom of a bottle, I have no doubt, you old reprobate.' "'What happened to Tommy?' "'It was the ghost,' said Tommy, delighted to have centre stage again. "'He swooped out at me, Mr Salzeller. I think my leg is broken.' he added quickly, in the voice of one who is suddenly aware of the time-off opportunities of the situation. Agnes expected the newcomer to say something like, Ghosts, there's no such thing. He had the kind of face that said that. Instead, he said, Back again, is he? Where did he go? Didn't see, Mr. Salzilla. He just swooped off again. Some of you help Tommy down to the canteen, said Salzilla, and someone else fetch a doctor. "'His leg isn't broken,' said Agnes, "'but that's a nasty rope burn on his neck "'and he's filled his own ear with paint.' "'What do you know about it, miss?' said Tommy. "'A paint-filled ear didn't sound as though it had the possibilities of a broken leg. "'I've, er, had some training,' said Agnes, "'and then added quickly, "'It's a nasty burn, though, "'and of course there may be some delayed shock.' "'Oh, brandy is very good for that, isn't it?' said Tommy. "'Perhaps you could try forcing some between my lips.' "'Thank you, Perdita. The rest of you go back to what you were doing,' said Salzella. "'Big dark holes,' said Mr Pounder. "'Big ones.' "'Yes, thank you, Mr Pounder. Help Ron with Mr Cripps, will you? Perdita, you come here. And you, Christine?' The two girls stood before the director of music. "'Did you see anything?' said Salzella. "'I saw a great creature with great flapping wings.' "'And great big holes where his eyes should be,' said Christine. "'I'm afraid I just saw something white up in the ceiling,' said Agnes. "'Sorry.' She blushed, aware of how useless that sounded. Perdita would have seen a mysterious, cloaked figure or something. Something interesting. Salzella smiled at her. "'You mean you just see things that are really there?' she said. "'I can see you haven't been with the opera for long, dear, "'but I may say I'm pleased to have a level-headed person around here for once.' "'Oh, no!' screamed someone. "'It's the ghost!' shrieked Christine automatically. "Uh, "'It's the young man behind the organ,' said Agnes. "'Sorry.' "'Observant as well as level-headed,' said Salzella. "'Whereas I can see that you, Christine, will fit right in here. "'What's the matter, André?' "'A fair-haired young man peered around the organ pipes. "'Someone's been smashing things, Mr Salzella.' he said mournfully. The pallet springs and the backfalls and everything. Completely ruined. I'm sure I won't be able to get a tune out of it. And it's priceless. Salzella sighed. All right, I'll tell Mr Bucket, he said. Thank you, everyone. He gave Agnes a gloomy nod and strode off. You shouldn't ought to do that to people, said Nanny Og in a vague sort of way as the coach began to get up speed. She looked around with a wide, friendly grin at the now rather dishevelled occupants of the coach. "'Morning,' she said, delving into the sack. "'I'm Githa Og. I've got fifteen children. This is my friend Esme Weatherwax. We're going to Ankh Morpork. Would anyone like an egg sandwich? I've brung plenty. The cat's been sleeping on them, but they're fine. Look, they bend back all right. No? 
Please yourself, I'm sure. Let's see what else we've got. Ah, has anybody got an opener for a bottle of beer? A man in the corner indicated that he might have such a thing. Fine, said Nannyog. Anyone got something to drink a bottle of beer out of? Another man nodded, hopefully. Good, said Nannyog. Now, has anybody got a bottle of beer? Granny, for once not the centre of attention, as all horrified eyes were on Nanny and her sack, surveyed the other occupants of the coach. The express stage went right over the ramtops and all the way through the patchwork of little countries beyond. If it cost forty dollars just from Lancre, then it must have cost these people a lot more. What sort of folk spent the best part of two months' wages just to travel fast and uncomfortably? The thin man who sat clutching his bag was probably a spy, she decided. The fat man who'd volunteered the glass looked as if he sold things. He had the unpleasant complexion of someone who'd hit too many bottles but missed too many meals. They were huddled together on their seat because the rest of it was occupied by a man of almost wizardly proportions. He didn't appear to have woken up when the coach stopped. There was a handkerchief over his face. He was snoring with the regularity of a geezer and looked as though the only worries he might have in the world were a tendency for small objects to gravitate towards him and the occasional tide. Nanny Og continued to rummage round in her bag, and as was the case when she was preoccupied, her mouth had wired itself to her eyeballs without her brain intervening. She was used to travelling by broomstick. Long-distance ground travel was a novelty to her, so she prepared with some care. Ah, let's see now. Book of puzzles for long journeys. Cushion. Foot powder. <laughs> Mosquito trap. Phrase book. Bag to be sick into. Oh, dear. The audience, which against all probability had managed to squeeze itself further away from Nanny during the litany, waited with horrified interest. What? said Granny. How often do you reckon this coach stops? What's the matter? I should have gone before we left. Sorry, it's the jolting. Anyone know if there's a privy on this thing? She added brightly. Um, said the probable spy, we generally wait until the next stop, or... He stopped. He had been about to add, there's always the window, which was a manly option on the bumpier rural stretches, but he stopped himself in the horrible apprehension that this ghastly old woman might seriously consider the possibility. "'There's O'Hoolan just a bit further on the road,' said Granny, who was trying to doze. "'You just wait.' "'This coach doesn't stop at O'Hoolan,' said the spy helpfully. Granny Weatherwax raised her head. "'Up until now, that is,' said the spy. Mr Bucket was sitting in his office trying to make sense of the Opera House's books. They didn't make any kind of sense.' He reckoned he was as good as the next man at reading a balance sheet, but these were to bookkeeping what grit was to clockwork. Seldom Bucket had always enjoyed opera. He didn't understand it and never had, but he didn't understand the ocean either, and he enjoyed that too. He looked upon the purchase as, well, something to do, a sort of working retirement. The offer had been too good to pass up. Things had been getting pretty tough in the wholesale cheese and milk derivatives business, and he'd been looking forward to the quieter climbs of the world of art. The previous owners had put on some good operas. It was only a shame that their genius hadn't run to bookkeeping as well. Money seemed to have been taken out of the accounts when anyone needed it. The financial record system largely consisted of notes on torn bits of paper saying, I've taken $30 to pay Q. See you Monday, R. Who was R? Who was Q? What was the money for? You wouldn't get away with this sort of thing in the world of cheese. He looked up as the door opened. 
Ah, Salzella, he said. Uh, thank you for coming. Um, you, you, you don't know who uh, Q is by any chance? No, Mr Bucket. Or R? I'm afraid not. Salzella pulled up a chair. It's taken me all morning, but I, I've worked out we pay more than $1,500 a year for ballet shoes, said Bucket, waving a piece of paper in the air. Salzella nodded. Yes, they do rather go through them at the toes. I mean, it's ridiculous. I, I've still got a pair of boots belonging to my father. But ballet shoes, <clears throat> sir, are rather more like foot gloves, Salzella explained. You're telling me. They cost seven dollars a pair, and they last hardly any time at all. Uh, a few performances. There must be some way we can, we can make a saving. Salzella gave his new employer a long, cool stare. Possibly we could ask the girls to spend more time in the air, he said. A few extra grands jetés. Bucket looked puzzled. Hmm, w uh, w would that work, he said suspiciously. Well, their feet wouldn't be on the ground for so long, would they, said Salzella, in the tones of one who knows for a fact that he's much more intelligent than anyone else in the room. Oh, good point, good point. Um, have a word with the ballet mistress, will you? Of course. I am sure she will welcome the suggestion. You may well have halved costs at a stroke. Bucket beamed. Which is perhaps just as well, said Salzella. There is, in fact, another matter that I've come to see you about. Yes? It is to do with the organ we had. Had? Uh, what do you mean, had? said Bucket, adding, You're going to tell me something expensive, are you? What have we got now? A lot of pipes and some keyboards, said Salzella. Everything else has been smashed. Smashed? By who? Salzella leaned back. He was not a man to whom amusement came easily, but he realised that he was rather enjoying this. Tell me, he said, when Mr. Pnigeus and Mr. Cavey sold you this opera house, did they mention anything supernatural? Bucket scratched his head. Uh, well, yes. After I'd signed and paid, it was a bit of a joke. They said, uh, oh, and by the way, people say there's some man in evening dress who haunts the place. Ha, ha, ha. Ridiculous, isn't it? These theatrical people like children, really. Ha, ha, ha. But you may find it keeps them happy if you always keep box eight free on first nights. Ha, ha, ha. I remember that quite well. Handing over $30,000 concentrates the memory a bit. And then they rode off. Quite a fast carriage, now I come to think about it. Ah, said Salzella, and he almost smiled. Well, now that the ink is dry, I wonder if I might fill you in on the fine detail. Birds sang. The wind rattled the dried seed heads of moorland flowers. Granny Weatherwax poked in the ditches to see if there were any interesting herbs hereabouts. High over the hills a buzzard screamed and wheeled. The coach stood by the side of the road, despite the fact that it should have been speeding along at least twenty miles away. At last Granny grew bored and sidled towards a clump of gorse bushes. "'How are you doing, Geetha?' "'Fine, fine,' said a muffled voice. "'Only I reckon the coach driver is getting a bit impatient.' "'You can't hurry, nature,' said Nanny Og. "'Well, don't blame me. "'You was the one who said it was too draughty on the broomsticks.' 
"'You make yourself useful as me weatherwax,' said the voice from the bushes, "'by obliging me in finding any dock or burdock plants "'that might happen to be around here. Thank you very much.' "'Herbs, what are you planning with them?' "'I'm planning to say, thank goodness, big leaves, that's just what I need.' Some distance from the bushes where Nanny Og was communing with nature, there was, placid under the autumn sky, a lake. In the reeds, a swan was dying, or was due to die. There was, however, an unforeseen snag. Death sat down on the bank. "'Now look,' he said. "'I know how it is supposed to go. Swans sing just once, beautifully, before they die.' That's where the word swan song originates. It is very moving. Now, let us try this again. He produced a tuning fork from the shadowy recesses of his robe and twanged it on the side of his scythe. There's your note. Uh-uh, said the swan, shaking its head. Why make it difficult? I like it here, said the swan. "'That has nothing to do with it.' "'Did you know I could break a man's arm with a blow of my wing?' "'How about if I get you started? "'Do you know Moonlight Bay?' "'That's no more than a barbershop ditty. "'I happen to be a swan.' "'Little brown jug?' "'Death cleared his throat. "'Ha, ha, ha, he, 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 little brown—' "'That's a song?' The swan hissed angrily and swayed from one crabbed foot to the other. I don't know who you are, Sirrah, but where I come from we've got better taste in music. Really? Would you care to show me an example? Ah, ah. Damn. Thought you'd got me there, didn't you? said the swan. Thought you'd tricked me, hmm? Thought I might unthinkingly give you a couple of bars of the peddler's song from Lohenshark, eh? I don't know that one. The swan took a deep laboured breath. That's the one that goes, Schneider, mine and Nigen has... Thank you, said Death. The scythe moved. Bugger! A moment later, the swan stepped out of its body and ruffled fresh but slightly transparent wings. Now what? it said. That's up to you. It's always up to you. Mr Bucket leaned back in his creaky leather chair with his eyes shut until his director of music had finished. So, Bucket said, let me see if I've got this right. There's this ghost. Every time anyone loses a hammer in this place, it's been stolen by the ghost. Every time someone cracks a note, it's because of the ghost. But also, every time someone finds a lost object, it's because of the ghost. Every time someone has a very good scene, it must be because of the ghost. He sort of comes with the building, like the rats. Every so often someone sees him, but not for long, because he comes and goes like a, well, well, well <laughs> a ghost. Apparently, we let him use Box 8 for free on every first night performance. And you say people like him. Like isn't quite the right word, said Salzella. It would be more correct to say that, well, it's pure superstition, of course, but they think he's lucky. Thought. He was, anyway. And you wouldn't understand a thing about that, would you, you coarse little cheesemonger? He added to himself. Cheese is cheese. Milk goes rotten naturally. 
You don't have to make it happen by having several hundred people wound up until their nerves go twang. Lucky, said Bucket flatly. Luck is very important, said Salzella, in a voice in which pained patience floated like ice cubes. I imagine that temperament is not an important factor in the cheese business. We rely on rennet, said Bucket. Salzella sighed. Anyway, the company feel that the ghost is lucky. He used to send people little notes of encouragement. After a really good performance, sopranos would find a box of chocolates in their dressing room. Mm, that sort of thing. And dead flowers, for some reason. Dead flowers? Well, not flowers at all as such, just a bouquet of dead rose stems with no roses on them. It's something of a trademark of his. It's considered lucky. Dead flowers are lucky. Possibly. Live flowers certainly are terribly bad luck on stage. Some singers won't even have them in their dressing room. So dead flowers are safe, you might say. Odd, but safe. And it didn't worry people because everyone thought the ghost was on their side. At least they did, until about six months ago. Mr. Bucket shut his eyes again. Tell me, he said. There have been accidents. What kind of accidents? The kind of accidents that you prefer to call accidents? Mr. Bucket's eyes stayed closed. Like the time when Reg Plenty and Fred Chiswell were working late one night up on the curdling vats, and it turned out Reg had been seeing Fred's wife, and somehow... Bucket swallowed. Somehow he must have tripped, Fred said, and, and, and fallen. I am not familiar with the gentleman concerned, but that kind of accident, yes. Bucket sighed. That was some of the finest farmhouse nutty we ever made. Do you want me to tell you about our accidents? I'm sure you're going to. A seamstress stitched herself to the wall. A deputy stage manager was found stabbed with a prop sword. Oh, and you wouldn't like me to tell you what happened to the man who worked the trapdoor. And all the lead mysteriously disappeared from the roof, although personally I don't think that was the work of the ghost. And everyone calls these accidents. Well, you wanted to sell your cheese, didn't you? I can't imagine anything that would depress the house like news that dead bodies are dropping like flies out of the flies. He took an envelope out of his pocket and placed it on the table. The ghost likes to leave little messages, he said. There was one by the organ. A scenery painter spotted him and nearly had an accident. Bucket sniffed the envelope. It reeked of turpentine. The letter inside was on a sheet of the Opera House's own notepaper. In neat, copperplate writing, it said, Ah-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha. Ah-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha. Ha 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 ha! Beware, yours sincerely, the Opera Ghost. What sort of person said Salzella patiently? Sits down and writes a maniacal laugh, and all those exclamation marks you notice five a sure sign of someone who wears his underpants on his head. Opera can do that to a man. Look, at least let's search the building. The cellars go on forever. I'll need a boat. A boat? In the cellar? Oh, 
Didn't they tell you about the sub-basement? Bucket smiled the bright, crazed smile of a man who was nearing double exclamation marks himself. No, he said, they didn't tell me about the uh, sub-basement. They were too busy not telling me that someone goes around killing the company. <laughs> I don't recall anyone saying, Oh, by the way, people are dying a lot and incidentally there's a touch of rising damp. They're flooded. Oh, good, said Bucket. What with? Buckets of blood? <laughs> didn't you have a look? They said the cellars were fine. And you believed them? Well, there was rather a lot of champagne. Salzella sighed. Bucket took offence at the sigh. I happen to pride myself that I am a good judge of character, he said. Look a man deeply in the eye and give him a firm handshake. And you know everything about him. Yes, indeed, said Salzella. Oh, Blast. Signor Enrico Basilica will be here the day after tomorrow. Uh, do you think something might happen to him? Oh, not much. Cut throat, perhaps? What? You think so? How should I know? Well, what do you want me to do? Close the place? As far as I can see, it doesn't make any money as it is. Why hasn't anyone told the watch? That would be worse said Salzella. Big trolls in rusty chainmail tramping everywhere, getting in everyone's way and asking stupid questions. They'd close us down. Bucket swallowed. Oh, we can't have that, he said. Can't have them putting everyone on edge. Salzella sat back. He seemed to relax a little. On edge, Mr. Bucket, he said. This is opera. <laughs> everyone is always on edge. Have you ever heard of a catastrophe? Curve, Mr. Bucket? Seldom Bucket did his best. Well, well I, I know there's a dreadful bend in the road, but a catastrophe curve, Mr. Bucket, is what opera runs along. Opera happens because a large number of things amazingly fail to go wrong, Mr. Bucket. It works because of hatred and love and nerves. All the time. This isn't cheese. This is opera. If you wanted a quiet retirement, Mr. Bucket, you shouldn't have bought the opera house. You should have done something peaceful, like alligator dentistry. Nanny Og was easily bored, but on the other hand, she was also easy to amuse. Certainly an interesting way to travel, she said. You do get to see places. Yes, said Granny, every five miles, it seems to me. Oh, I can't think what's got into me. I shouldn't think the horses have managed to get faster in a walk all morning. They were by now alone, except for the huge snoring man. The other two had got out and joined the travellers on top. The main cause of this was Grebo. With a cat's unerring instinct for people who dislike cats, he'd leapt heavily into their laps and given them the young massa back on the old plantation treatment and he'd treedled them into submission, and then settled down and gone to sleep, claws gripping not sufficiently to draw blood, but definitely to suggest that this was an option should the person move or breathe. And then, when he was sure they were resigned to the situation, he'd started to smell. No one knew where it came from. It was not associated with any known orifice. It was just that after five minutes' doze, the air above Grebo had a penetrating smell of fermented carpets. He was now trying it out on the very large man. It wasn't working. At last, Grebo had found a stomach too big for him. Also, the continuing going up and down was beginning to make him feel ill. 
The snores reverberated around the coach. "'Wouldn't like to come between him and his pudding,' said Nanny Og. Granny was staring out of the window. At least her face was turned that way, but her eyes were focused on infinity. Githa, Yes, Esme? Mind if I ask you a question?' "'You don't normally ask if I mind,' said Nanny. "'Doesn't it ever get you down the way people don't think properly?' Oh, oh thought Nanny. "'I reckon I got her out just in time. "'Thank goodness for literature.' "'How do you mean?' she said. "'I means the way they distract themselves.' "'Can't say I ever really thought about it, Esme. "'Like, suppose I was to say to you, "'Githa Og, your house is on fire. "'What's the first thing you'd try and take out?' Nanny bit her lip. This is one of them personality questions, ain't it? She said. That's right. Like you try and guess what I'm like by what I say. Githa Og, I've known you all my life. I knows what you're like. I don't need to guess. But answer me all the same. I reckon I'd take Grebo. Granny nodded. Cos that shows I've got a warm and considerate nature. Nanny went on. No, it shows you're the kind of person who tries to work out what the right answer's supposed to be, said Granny. Untrustworthy. That was a witchy's answer if ever I heard one. Devious. Nanny looked proud. The snores changed to a blurt, blurt noise, and the handkerchief quivered. A treacle pudding with lots of custard. Hey, he just said something, said Nanny. He talks in his sleep said Granny Weatherwax. He's been doing it on enough. I never heard him. You were out of the coach. Oh. At the last stop he was going on about pancakes with lemon, said Granny, and mashed potatoes with butter. Makes me feel hungry just listening to that, said Nanny. I've got a pork pie in the bag somewhere. The snoring stopped abruptly. A hand came up and moved the handkerchief aside. The face beyond was friendly, bearded and small. It gave the witches a shy smile which turned inexorably towards the pork pie. Uh, "'Want a slice, mister?' said Nanny. "'I've got some mustard here, too.' "'Oh, <laughs> uh, would you, dear lady?' said the man in a squeaky voice. "'Don't know when I last had a pork pie. Oh, oh, dear.' He grimaced as if he'd just said something wrong and then relaxed. "'Got a bottle of beer if you want to drop, too,' said Nanny. She was one of those women who enjoy seeing people eat almost as much as eating herself. Oh, beer, said the man. Beer? You know, they don't let me drink beer. <laughs> it's supposed to be the wrong ambience. <laughs> I'd give anything for a pint of beer. Just a thank you would do, said Nanny, passing it over. Who's this they to whom you refers, said Granny. It's my fault, really, said the man, through a faint spray of pork crumbs. Got caught up, I suppose. There was a change in the sounds from outside. The lights of a town were going past and the coach was slowing down. The man forced the last of the pie into his mouth and washed it down with the dregs of the beer. Oh, lovely, he said. Then he leaned back and put the handkerchief over his face. He raised a corner. Don't tell anyone I spoke to you, he said, but you've made a friend of Henry Slug. Then what do you do, Henry Slug? said Granny carefully. I'm... I'm on the stage. Yes, we can see, said Nanny Og. No, I meant... The coach stopped. Gravel crunched as people climbed down. The door was pulled open. Granny saw a crowd of people peering excitedly through the doorway and reached up automatically to straighten her hat. But several hands reached out for Henry Slug, who sat up, smiled nervously, and let himself be helped out. 
Several people also shouted out a name. But it wasn't the name of Henry Slug. Who's Henry Cor Basilica? said Nanny Og. Dunno, said Granny. Maybe he's the person Mr. Slug's afraid of. The coaching inn was a run-down shack with only two bedrooms for guests. As helpless old ladies travelling alone, the witches got one, simply because all hell would have been let loose if they hadn't. Mr. Bucket looked pained. Uh, I may just be a big man in cheese to you, he said. You may think I'm just some hard-headed businessman who wouldn't know culture if he found it floating in his tea, but I have been a patron of the opera here and elsewhere for, for, for many years. I can hum nearly the whole of... I am sure you've seen a lot of opera, said Salzella, but how much do you know about production? I've been behind the scenes in lots of theatres. Oh, theatre, said Salzella. Theatre doesn't even approach it. Opera isn't theatre with singing and dancing. Opera's opera. You might think a production like Luhan Shark is full of passion, but it's a sandpit of toddlers compared to what goes on behind the scenes. The singers all loathe the sight of one another. The chorus despises the singers. They both hate the orchestra and everyone fears the conductor. The staff on one prompt side won't talk to the staff on the opposite prompt side. The dancers are all crazed from hunger in any case. And that's only the start of it. Because what is really... There was a series of knocks at the door. They were painfully irregular, as if the knocker were having to concentrate quite hard. Come in, Walter, said Salzella. Walter Plinge shuffled in, a pail dangling at the end of each arm. Come to fill your coal scuttle, Mr. Bucket. Bucket waved a hand vaguely and turned back to the director of music. You were saying? Salzella stared at Walter as the man carefully piled lumps of coal in the scuttle one at a time. Salzella? What? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, what was I saying? Uh, something about it being only the start. What? Oh, yes, yes. You see, it's fine for actors. There's plenty of parts for old men. Acting's something you can do all your life. You get better at it. But when your talent is singing or dancing, time creeps up behind you. All the... He fumbled for a word and settled lamely for... Time. Time is the poison. You watch backstage one night and you'll see the dancers checking all the time in any mirror they can find for that first little imperfection. You watch the singers. Everyone's on edge. Everyone knows that this might be their last perfect night. That tomorrow might be the beginning of the end. That's why everyone worries about luck, you see. All the stuff about live flowers being unlucky, you remember? Well, so's green. And real jewellery worn on stage. And real mirrors on stage. And whistling on stage. And peeking at the audience through the main curtains. And using new makeup on a first night. And knitting on stage, even at rehearsals. A yellow clarinet in the orchestra is very unlucky. Don't ask me why. And as for stopping a performance before its proper ending, well, that's the worst of all. You might as well sit under a ladder and break mirrors. Behind Salzella, Walter carefully placed the last lump of coal on the pile in the scuttle and dusted it carefully. 
Good grief, said Bucket at last. I thought it was tough in cheese. He waved a hand at the pile of papers and what passed for the accounts. I paid 30,000 for this place, he said. It's in the centre of the city. Prime sight. I thought it was hard bargaining. They'd have probably accepted 25. Uh, and, and, and tell me again about Box 8. You let this ghost have it. The ghost considers it his for every first night, yes. Mm. How does he get in? No one knows. We've searched and searched for secret entrances. He, he really doesn't pay? No. It's worth fifty dollars a night. There will be trouble if you sell it, said Salzella. Good grief, Salzella. You're an educated man. How can you sit there so calmly and accept this sort of madness? Some creature in a mask has the run of the place, gets a prime box all to himself, kills people, and you sit there saying there will be trouble. I told you, the show must go on. Why? We never said, the cheese must go on. What's so special about the show going on? Salzella smiled. As far as I understand it, he said, the power behind the show, the soul of the show, all the effort that's gone into it, call it what you will, it leaks out and spills everywhere. That's why they burble about the show must go on. It must go on. But most of the company wouldn't even understand why anyone should ask the question. Bucket glared at the pile of what passed for the Opera House's financial records. Well, they certainly don't understand bookkeeping. Who does the accounts? All of us, really, said Salzella. All of you? Money gets put in, money gets taken out, said Salzella vaguely. Is it important? Bucket's jaw dropped. Is it important? Because, Salzella went on smoothly, opera doesn't make money. Opera never makes money. Good grief, man! Important? What had I ever have achieved in the cheese business? I'd like to know if I'd said that money wasn't important. Salzella smiled humorlessly. There are people out on the stage right now, sir, he said, who'd say that you would probably have made better cheeses. He sighed and leaned over the desk. You see, he said, cheese does make money, and opera doesn't. Opera's what you spend money on. But what do you get out of it? You get opera. You put money in, you see, and opera comes out, said Salzella wearily. There's no profit. Profit. Profit, murmured the director of music, scratching his forehead. No, I don't believe I've come across the word. Then how do we manage? We seem to rub along. Bucket put his head in his hands. I mean, he muttered half to himself, I knew the place wasn't making much, but I thought that was just because it was run badly. We have big audiences. We charge a mint for tickets. Now I'm told that a ghost runs around killing people, and we don't even make any money. 
Salzella beamed. Ah, opera, he said. Grebo stalked over the inn's rooftops. Most cats are nervous and ill at ease when taken out of their territory, which is why cat books go on about putting butter on their paws and so on, presumably because constantly skidding into the walls will take an animal's mind off where the walls actually are. But Grebo travelled well, purely because he took it for granted that the whole world was his dirt box. He dropped heavily onto an outhouse roof and padded towards a small open window. Grebo also had a cat's approach to possessions, which was simply that nothing edible had a right to belong to other people. From the window came a variety of smells which included pork pies and cream. He squeezed through and dropped onto the pantry shelf. Of course, sometimes he got caught, at least sometimes he got discovered. There was cream. He settled down. He was halfway down the bowl when the door opened. Grebo's ears flattened. His one good eye sought desperately for an escape route. The window was too high. The person opening the door was wearing a long dress that militated against the old through-the-legs routine, and... and... and there was no escape. His claws scrabbled on the floor. Oh, no, here it came. Something flipped in his body's morphogenic field. Here was a problem a cat shape couldn't deal with. Oh, well... We know another one. Crockery crashed around him. Shelves erupted as his head rose. A bag of flour exploded outwards to make room for his broadening shoulders. The cook stared up at him. Then she looked down, and then up, and then her gaze dragged as though it were on a winch down again. She screamed. Grebo screamed. He grabbed desperately at a bowl to cover that part which, as a cat, he had never had to worry about exposing. He screamed again this time because he'd just poured lukewarm pork dripping all over himself. His groping fingers found a large copper jelly mould. Clasping it to his groinal areas, he barreled forward and fled out of the pantry and out of the kitchen and out of the dining room and out of the inn and into the night. The spy, who was dining with the travelling salesman, put down his knife. That's something you don't often see, he said. What? said the salesman, who'd had his back to the excitement. One of those old copper jelly moulds. They're worth quite a lot now. My aunt had a very good one. The hysterical cook was given a big drink and several members of staff went out into the darkness to investigate. All they found was a jelly mould lying forlornly in the yard.